Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the feds are planning a meeting with the provinces to strategize on scaling up domestic vaccine production. Should we have not been doing that last year? A new poll from Leger say the majority of Canadians, two-thirds, blame the feds, not the provinces, for the delay in vaccination across Canada. Well, Ottawa is deciding what to do with Huawei's 5G network. They're also partnering with universities, despite security concerns. Is that a good idea? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hope you had a great family day long weekend. Wait a second. With COVID-19, isn't every day a family day long weekend? What? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, that was our observation of the uh, family day long weekend. But, Dad, it's really not any different from last weekend, is it? We're still playing Monopoly and not seeing anybody. Isn't if it, hasn't it been family day long weekend since uh, this time last year? Since the fam- we didn't have family day, a normal family day last year. Do you remember that? Because um, we still didn't figure out what it was. It wasn't another week or two by March break that uh, we realized, uh, uh-oh, uh, we got to lock this puppy down. Uh, anyway, good afternoon to you. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air as we begin week number 49. Uh, the, uh, the Prime Minister just finishing up his uh, news conference. You notice uh, he's always late. He's never on time. The premiers are pretty much on time, but the prime minister is always, always a bit late. Anyway, uh, it was all gun control all the time today. Didn't say anything about uh, vaccine, really, other than towards the end, and, and you know that was pretty much it. Uh, but yeah, uh, obviously unveiling a, uh, a gun a gun control legislation today. Uh, no doubt, like last week, trying to uh, distract us from the sec from the fact that uh, here we are, forty nine weeks into this, and uh, we're thirty eighth on the list of countries that have been vaccinated. Which for thirty eighth, that's probably where the gun control priority is for most Canadians. No, I'm sure it's a lot higher than that, but I'm sure it's not uh, as high as vaccine and, and vaccination and uh, that sort of thing. So. So uh, anyway, uh, that was the chatter today. Very little about uh, going forward with vaccine. We do know that 400,000 doses, hopefully this week, and then another 400,000 doses next week as it all ramps up. Um, but at the end of the day, that's 800,000 doses. That's enough for 400,000 people. And in Ontario alone, we have just under 15 million, and it's going to take vaccination for 10 million, just even get herd immunity. So that would be 20 million doses for Ontario alone. And they're all excited about 400,000 doses coming in this week that will be distributed all the way across the country, not just in Ontario. So still, uh, we're hoping that uh, this week it looks like vaccines are going to pick up. Uh, but still, uh, nowhere where we, uh, where we need to be. It was interesting. I got a, a text from my sister over the weekend. Uh, she's a couple of years older than I am and has friends who have places in Florida who are snowbirds. So they go down there and spend their winters uh, down there. They're in their early 60s. 
and uh, they've all been vaccinated. And they're telling them, come on down, bring your golf clubs and get a vaccine. So uh, the snowbirds down there in their 60s, they're vaccinated twice. They've been hit twice already. They've, been, they've got both their jabs. So these six people that uh, my sister is aware that have places down there, uh, they're, they're vaccinating the 60-year-olds. That's where they're at. Uh, we're sitting at uh, 38th, hoping for 400,000 doses to come in this week that will uh, slowly move across the country and uh, eventually into the arms of Canadians. So certainly still uh, not where we uh, want to be. Going to play you this clip. Uh, this is uh, this is the CEO of Providence Therapeutics uh, from last week. We interviewed him on the show. Second time we've interviewed him, and he has talked about trying to get vaccinations uh, started in Canada and, uh, you know, pursued the government back in March and April when the UK decided they were going to start producing. And we're going to talk later in the show of where they are today now producing their own vaccine, uh, and virtually the same starting spot as Canada. And, uh, place, uh, companies like Providence Therapeutics were basically said, mm, well, their calls weren't answered. They were just told no. And now it's announced last week that, uh, the Premier of Manitoba, Premier, uh, uh, of Manitoba has announced that he is doing a deal with uh, uh, Providence Therapeutics in order to buy doses from them when they become approved. We were talking to the CEO uh, last week, and he also said that uh, that other provinces are going to be doing the same thing. And I apologize. Here is that clip. Look, I, I'm at this point in time. My focus is 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 working with the premiers and. And, uh, ensuring that we've, we have the ability to roll out vaccines here in Canada, that we've got a security supply as, as variants, uh, emerge. Um, if the federal government is able to deliver vaccines, uh, this year, uh, from international suppliers and get Canadians vaccinated before our vaccine is produced, I would welcome that. That would get us to back to normal sooner. And, uh, and the vaccines that we produce would then be, uh, resold into the international community, which certainly there's, there's no shortage of demand out there. All right. That is the CEO of Providence Therapeutics last week talking about how, uh, the provinces are inquiring about buying their own, uh, vaccine from a Canadian manufacturer and these companies, uh, it was interesting because this all started with, uh, the UK and there was a story a few weeks ago about a Canadian in the UK working, uh, Sir John Bell, I believe, working on, um, in the UK on the, uh, AstraZeneca uh, vaccine and, uh, and they had literally started from scratch and said that Canada could have done the same thing, but instead we were busy with the CanSino deal with China. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party pulled the plug on that. Then we started lining up for vaccinations in August to buy them. Whereas if we just started to producing, uh, producing them, we would be there by now. And uh, obviously that didn't happen. And as soon as it came out that this Canadian over in the U.K. said, yeah, yeah, Canada can do it. Then immediately, two days later, we announced that, oh, we've got Novavax, which is a U.S. company 
that's going to uh, actually set up shop in Canada. And then we never heard more about that. Then all of a sudden we're hearing uh, the Premier of, uh, of Manitoba saying that he was going to um, uh, work on buying his own uh, uh, vaccine from producers here in Canada. And now all of a sudden the headline is the feds are meeting with the province to strategize on scaling up domestic uh, domestic vaccine uh, capacity. Let's bring in uh, Daniel Bilan, James McGill, Professor of Political Science, Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada with McGill University and with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. You? I'm I'm good, thank you. So you know, I mean, we're almost a year into this now. So uh, I guess theoretically we are, uh, but uh, pretty much the same as I was last year, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. uh, your thoughts, your thoughts on on why we are talking about this now. It seems that the prime minister is one step behind the news here. Uh, we got the story out of the UK that they were in the same predicament that Canada was in, yet they did it. Uh, then all of a sudden we announce a Novavax deal. Then uh, we hear that the Premier of Manitoba is going to start buying his own Canadian vaccine. And now all of a sudden we hear that there's going to be, and it hasn't even happened yet, but they're talking about a meeting to discuss uh, strategizing, scaling up domestic vaccine. Your thoughts on why we're having these discussions now? Well, I, I think the federal government actually started to, to build up uh, the capacity for vaccine production, but it takes it's a slow process, and you talk about providence, but this vaccine has not been approved yet, and I don't think it's some, and the production, of course, uh, is, 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 uh, won't happen anytime soon. So I think the calculus on the part of the federal government is that, you know, we ordered all these vaccines uh, from, from different companies before they were approved last year, hoping that they will be ready, you know, they, they will start um, uh, becoming available by the end of the year, and it, it actually started in December. Um, and and now we we face these delays from Pfizer, for example, uh, and that makes the federal government look bad. Uh, that's true. At the same time, the lack of domestic production capacity in in vaccines, uh, the fact that we have a low capacity, is not something new. Is not something that the current government created. It's something that's related to decisions that were made often decades ago. We lost. We used to have a. <laughs> A strong uh, a production uh, capacity here in this Daniel. Country. Yeah, but Daniel, let me interrupt you there, though. I mean, we've heard this argument a million yeah. times and how it's past prime minister's faults, but we've seen the UK turn this around in one year. So rather than going back decades, it may, maybe have t- taken decades to loss, but the UK has turned it around in one year. And if we had started there, then when they did back in March and April, Providence Therapeutics says we'd be there by now. They were only a few weeks behind where Pfizer and Moderna was back in, in March. So d- does that argument still fly? I mean, you know, the prime minister's been in there five years and we've had a year to do this. And the UK did it as well as other countries who had nothing, started from scratch and are in the same spot. Was the UK really starting from scratch, the same level as Canada? I don't think so. Uh, but but see, I, I agree that we... It's, that's what Sir John. That's what Sir John Bell said. That's what Sir John Bell said, and it was all over the news for for a full week that uh, that that Canada has totally had the capacity to do that. It's just that we decided not to take that direction after the Cansino deal fell through, and instead started just buying them. Yeah, we bought, Where, but whereas we Providence said yeah. they were approached back in March and April. Yeah, we bought a crazy amount of of doses, but of course you rely on foreign. Uh, 
on foreign manufacturing uh, capacity, and, and I think it's risky, and I think we took a risk, and right now I think the risk is not paying off. At the same time, you know, we'll talk in a few months from now, and maybe the situation will be totally different. So um, it's these are, and I think that we are we are investing in ramping up capacity for production uh, here in Montreal, for example. And there are also projects in the out west, but. I do think that it's a choice that the government made early on to rely, at least at first, rely mainly on foreign uh, vaccines or vaccines that were uh, manufactured abroad. And, you know, people can question the wisdom of that choice today. Um, and I think that that's now they maybe have the second thoughts about this. And that's why they are now, uh, uh, you know, trying to focus more on that. But, um um, you know, it, it will take a time to, uh, to have all of this ready. And even uh, Providence is one, one company, and, and they, um, you know, they have vested interest in, in having the government investing in, in, in domestic production. And I think the government should invest in domestic production, even if, it does, even if we have enough vaccines that come in from abroad. We should be ready for the next pandemic already. So we should have this production, uh, this domestic production in and, 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 and something massive that will be ready for the future. And also, we might need this vaccine for uh, uh, years and years to come, like the flu mm -hmm. vaccine, right? We might need to administer a vaccine every year to millions and millions of people. So why not building our domestic capacity? I think it's in our national interest to do so. And, 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 and I think it should be a major priority. Uh, uh, obviously, back in March and April, that were that that was the decision that countries were making around the world. What avenue to take? This was new for everybody. Yeah. Um, and also at that time, the prime minister was involved with the uh, the uh, Cansino deal from China and was pretty much putting all of their eggs in that basket as opposed to the other Canadian companies that are we're, we're certainly hearing and, and talking about now. Are you surprised that the Prime Minister got into a deal with, you know, CanSino, considering our relationships with, with China, our relationship with China? I mean, I know they had worked on other vaccines in the past, but that was, you know, that was some time ago. A lot of things have changed since the two Michaels have been apprehended. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that didn't go very well in terms of the deal and, you know, what happened. So uh, I do think it was a mistake. And they, then after that, they started to buy from, from many different companies like Pfizer and Moderna before these vaccines were approved. So that was a risk. Um, and, and I do think that we are late in terms of vaccination compared to other countries. We are in the 39th place right now. So it doesn't look good. But again, we have to see over the next few months if it really, we start to receive massive, you know, the numbers increase dramatically and we, the situation improves, it won't be that bad. But if we have further delays that occur within the next few months, I think the, the liberals will be in real trouble, especially if they were thinking about having an election, say, in the spring or especially the fall. Uh, spring is probably not a good, good time right now considering what's happening. Uh, I think it, politically it's, um, it, it's, it's toxic for them. Uh, are you concerned about that this will be pushed on to the provinces? That, you know, uh, the provinces all have been working on these distribution systems, but I think they were set up uh, thinking that the, the supply would come in gradually week by week by week by week. Obviously, it's been very inconsistent. And now all of a sudden they're saying we could get uh, a lot of these shots, a lot of these doses 
on in the last shipment in at the very end of March, which, you know, all of a sudden it's, you know, uh, six months worth of vaccine or three months worth of vaccine lands on the province's steps uh, immediately. And then, you know, the blame lays on them. Well, gee whiz, why weren't you ready to have this distributed when we all know that's quite a feat? even when you're doing it consistently on a daily basis, let alone in one just fell swoop. Yeah, and the stress will be enormous. And we saw earlier when vaccines were available that some provinces took quite a bit of time to actually start, uh, uh, you know, administering these vaccines. So I think that uh, the, the provinces are will face major political risks. Right now, it's the federal government that's facing most of the criticisms. But when tons of vaccines will be available, because it will happen uh, sooner rather than later, then they will uh, they, they will have to deliver. But the federal government could certainly help and uh, offer support. Uh, if the military, you know, they send them to to long-term care facilities last year, why not having the military help the the, the armed forces uh, help uh, administer vaccines if the provinces? Uh, call uh, the the armed forces in. I'm sure the the federal government will uh, will let let that happen. Um, but I think that they they have to they have more time to plan at very least. Uh, um, but but it would be really interesting to see mm. also because now we compare Canada with other countries in terms of how how many doses of vac- vaccines we get and so forth. But soon we'll compare provinces and now they are delivering and some premiers can face uh, criticisms if their province Manitoba is not doing as well as Saskatchewan or or uh, Ontario not as well as Quebec or vice versa so that will be interesting to uh, to see uh, what happens then but right now we focus more on the the international supply of vaccine and the fact that frankly we have not invested enough in our in our domestic capacity recently over the last year but also over the last decades and there is a price to pay for these uh, two uh, um, these two trends or these two choices that were made Danielle Bilan has been with us, James McGill, Professor of Political Science and the Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Daniel, thank you as always. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. Have a wonderful day. All right. Uh, uh, the vast majority of Canadians now blame Ottawa uh, rather than the provincial governments for delays in uh, the COVID-19 uh, vaccinations. Uh, that's a new poll out of Leger. 69%, 69% of respondents believe Canada is behind on deliveries due to the federal challenges, uh, obtaining doses on the global market, and of course, uh, our lack of, uh, production here, uh, in, uh, in Canada as well, all contributing, uh, to all of this. But it's amazing how this has changed because it seemed for the longest time, uh, this didn't seem to bother Canadians. Oh, we'll get it. Don't worry. And I'm not sure if that's because they just have a lot of trust in government or if there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy out there and no no i'm good you go ahead you have it first so is this really about politics or is canada become a country of anti-vaxxers uh it's fascinating to watch this all roll out and where we are at 39th in the world and canada's reaction to it let's bring in heather owen vice president of leger and with us now heather thank you for the time i hope you're doing well I'm doing very well. How are you, Scott? I'm doing good. You know, can't complain. Another day, and it's a snow day, so we can't go anywhere. (laughs) Awesome. And week 45 at home, you said? No, 49. Week 49. 49. Goodness gracious. Yeah, Yeah. we're almost at March break. We're going to be the year anniversary, if we can call it that, I guess. 
Um, what I want to ask you, Heather, is how have our opinions on all of this changed over the last year? Uh, obviously, this new poll, 69% of respondents believe that uh, we're behind due to uh, the federal government. How has that changed over time? Well, the question about uh, the ability to obtain the dose from the global market was we just asked uh, this past week. So it's not part of our, our regular tracking, but certainly having seven in 10 Canadians and uh, uh, I think it was 66% of people in Ontario who said, you know, this is, uh, this is really just the federal government not, not being organized to, uh, to get us the, the resources that we need. Uh, are you surprised at this? Uh, why is this happening now, do you think? Well, in the, in the same poll, we asked Canadians um, about the Prime Minister's goal of, of um, having all willing Canadians vaccinated by September 2021. Um, and I know that at the, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm at the start of the year for this goal. Today, uh, 50% are not confident that this is going to happen. Uh, in Ontario, that dips down a little bit. In Ontario, it's about 45% who, who say this just, he's not going to make this goal. It's unrealistic. So, so we asked, well, we're behind. Who's responsible? And to your point, um, two-thirds of Canadians really pointed the finger at the feds. They said uh, it's not the province's fault that this is happening. This really, this really is a, the federal government's capacity to obtain doses of the vaccine that's that's where the where the blame lies now is this do you think political or is it because and i remember having this discussion probably just as the all of these vaccines were getting approved and everyone was saying well we got to wait for health canada to approve it as if they were going to be much later than anyone else but we all know everybody gets this information at roughly the same time which is why this is this vaccine has come out as quickly as it has around the world. Uh, so most of the time, these are being approved at roughly the same time. But, you know, a lot of Canadians back then, well, you know, we'll wait. it's got to be safe. So we're going to wait and see, you know, we don't care if we're not first, uh, you know. And now, uh, you know, even with these latest numbers, um, it would appear that Canada Canadians aren't necessarily real eager in line to, to get in line and roll up the sleeve. Well, um in terms of the approval, to your first point, um, Canadians are, are split in terms of in terms of the approval rate, uh, and and the number of people who think that we should be accelerating the approval of vaccines that are available in other countries is growing. There's definitely people saying, "Well, if it's if it's if it's good enough for for uh, our neighbors to the south or for for other uh, other countries that we trust." then it should be good enough for us. So why don't we, why don't we get on that and, and move that forward a bit faster? Uh, one, one interesting thing was we actually specifically asked about um, two vaccines, uh, one from Russia and one from China. Uh, and those, those were remarkably less interesting to Canadians. Those, uh, the, the desire to see those put on the global market or in the Canadian market uh, dropped to about uh, one in two Canadians who said, sure, I take, I take those. So that's interesting that Canadians necessarily aren't interested in a vaccination from Russia or China, um, yet Canada was involved in the CanSino deal for uh, the early part of all of this. Yeah. Um, is, is the government aware how Canadians are feeling about this sort of thing? 
Well, remember, these are also public opinion polls, and right, uh, yeah. we're, we're interested in, in how Canadians feel. And we, you know, we know the government defers to science in terms of making the decision. So, uh, it, but it's interesting to take the temperature of, of what can, how Canadians would, would uh, as a group, uh, cast their vote on these things. Now, we have uh, heard, obviously, last week that uh, the Premier of Manitoba um, was going to had start ta- had started talking with uh, uh, Providence Therapeutics about developing their own Canadian vaccine and purchasing that here. Do you think that has uh, played the role? Because obviously we're starting to see, uh, you know, people are concerned about the federal government's plan here if the provinces uh, are, are considering this. Yeah, I think that will be a very interesting discussion to watch in terms of how Health Canada and the provinces work together on on vaccine manufacture and or distribution. Um, Certainly it was a bold bold move by Manitoba to to start talking about that. Uh, And apparently we were talking to the the CEO of Providence and he said that they're in discussions with other provinces uh, as well. Um, You know, we were talking about how obviously these vaccines are all supposed to arrive there's uh, six million doses by the end of march and then everybody vaccinated uh, uh by the end of uh september um by the time that period rolls around whether it's the end of march or the end of september and i'm at, you know, obviously i'm asking you to look in a crystal ball here will canadians forget this point january february march when we were 39th do you think well, I, I think the Canadians are eager to get vaccinated. Um, and I think once, uh, once we get to that point where the supply is where it needs to be, uh, their intentions are to roll up their sleeves and to get vaccinated. Uh, 73% of Canadians are saying today that they'll get vaccinated. In Ontario, it's uh, completely in line with that number. Um, and that number actually is growing. So we were up three points since the last time we asked this question to two weeks ago. Uh, and just by comparison, when we asked the same question to Americans, the intention to get vaccinated uh, in the south is, uh, south of the border is, is, you know, just over 50%. So Canadians are definitely enthusiastic about, uh, about making sure that this, uh, this happens. Do you think the shortage makes people more eager for this? Um, I think I do. I do think that that uh, the concern about whether or not there will be supply is a concern. I also think that the discussion around um, uh, about the variants of of COVID and, and possible new threats to us is increasing the desire to make sure that that uh, that we don't that, that people are able to to get the vaccinations they want. Um, interesting. One of the numbers that we have been tracking. Uh, every on a regular basis, sort of every week since the start of the pandemic, is the fear of contracting contacting the virus, uh, and and it's at it's almost its highest point ever in the pandemic right now, with seventy uh, percent of Ontarians saying that they're actually afraid of getting coronavirus. Hmm. Um, Man, a lot of that has to be, and a lot of that has to be the concern over the variants. I'm guessing too, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. What about you were talking about those in the United States, and I know that that Leger polls uh, in both countries. Uh, it's interesting. We're starting to hear uh, information, uh, certainly anecdotally, anyway, that you know Canadian snowbirds, uh, Canadians who have property down in Florida, uh, that may be in their sixties, early sixties, or whatever, are have been vaccinated. They're getting vaccinated. They've been vaccinated twice. We're hearing reports of uh, people who have friends down there and say, hey, "Come on down, you know, and play golf." We'll get you vaccinated, and uh, and and that the Canadians who are living down there have already uh, been vaccinated. Do, do Canadians sit up here and go, "Well, wait a sec. If my friends, my neighbors who have a place in Florida are vaccinated, why am I so far back in line?" You know, we haven't actually asked that question, and I think it would be an interesting question to ask uh, on both sides of the border in terms of having Canadians vaccinated in the U.S. Americans' opinion of that, and and vice versa. So. Maybe we'll come back to you with the answer on that one. How much you talked about fear, uh, 70% uh, now in fear of the disease. How does that compare to a year ago or early on in the in this uh, pandemic? Um, so early on in the pandemic, we we definitely saw the, the um, concerns around around the fear of contracting the, the, the COVID-19 being fairly high, you know, Last Easter was probably at its highest, about where it is today. Um, and then uh, over the summer, we saw it. We saw things kind of ease ease down, where it was about forty five, fifty percent. But it's definitely been slowly growing in terms of the number of people who are af- afraid. And, and we've seen it spike in the last in the last month or so. Obviously, fear has a lot to do with the poll numbers that you're talking about. Uh, obviously, we're in a minority government here in Canada. There's been lots of buzz throughout this pandemic about an election. What do these numbers tell you about, you know, even if you're not directly polling about an election, what do these numbers tell you about that? You know, Scott, it's it's fascinating that support for all Canadian governments throughout the pandemic has been consistent. And it's been strong. Mm-hmm. Um, they can, can, federal and provincial governments continue to be seen as doing a reasonable job in managing the pandemic, which is right now the most important thing to pretty much every Canadian. Um, these numbers and even the, the supply of vaccine in Canada is really not hurting liberals. Uh, today, according to our poll, if we went to the, the polls of decided voters, 36% of Canadians would uh, would vote for Justin Trudeau. It's, so it's, How do you explain a, that, considering the numbers are so high on blaming the feds for this? Does that say more about the opposition not being known yet? I think that Canadians want to have confidence. I think everyone wants to have confidence that the government that's taking care of the crisis is a good government and is doing the best job that they can. And I think that... that People continue to put their their faith in in Justin Trudeau and in the health minister and in in our public health officers, and and we're, they're willing to stay the course and see this thing through with the governments that they have. Any fallout, Heather, over the announcement uh, last week about Canada would be dipping into the COVAX supply uh, to get its vaccine, which is obviously um, uh, the, the, the richer nations contribute to that so the poorer nations can have access to vaccine. Uh, we contribute to it, not necessarily supposed to take from it. Any reaction to that in any of your polling? 
we actually didn't ask about that. Again, that would be a great one for us to come back to you on. Do you see these numbers changing at all in the future, or does this all depend on how quickly this vaccine rolls out? The the numbers in terms of the government support? Correct. Uh, I, I believe that they'll stay consistently strong throughout the, uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, I think federally we ask about voting intentions, uh, and, and provincially we actually ask about satisfaction with, with how the, the pandemic's being, being managed. In, in Ontario, we see that number actually growing. Uh, it was up five points since we asked the question two weeks ago where you've got 60% of people in Ontario saying um, that they're satisfied with the job that's being done. But that's a, that's a strong thumbs up. All right. Heather Owen has been with us, Vice President of Leger. They doing some polling in and around where we are with vaccination and how we feel about our governments and what our leaders are doing uh, to move us forward. And uh, two thirds right now saying uh, it looks like the federal government is falling behind on this. Obviously, time will tell as more and more vaccine arrives on Canadian shores. Heather, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. Take care. Here's today's daily commentary. I hope you enjoyed your family day long weekend, which was probably a lot like your Easter long weekend or your Thanksgiving long weekend and perhaps your Christmas holidays for that matter. However, unlike last year's family day long weekend, this one was spent in lockdown. And anything that comes after this holiday, we will be acknowledging a one year anniversary of it spent with COVID-19. Except for maybe March break, because it's been postponed to April, delaying that gray one-year anniversary when things started to close down and life as we knew it would change forever. When asked about Family Day, my kids said, Family Day? The whole thing is one giant Family Day. We've been locked down in the same house for the last year. That's giant Family Day. We are sick of Family Day, they say. We want a get-out-of-my-face Family Day. Instead of spending time with the family for three days, they don't want to see or hear from anyone in the family for three days. How about a friend's day? Now that's a holiday. I'm Scott Thompson. Interesting article in the, uh, in the Globe and Mail this week. How Britain became a world leader in COVID-19 vaccination, uh, vaccination, vaccination distribution despite other uh, pandemic problems. And, you know, we've certainly documented this a lot on this show, how at a point where some countries decided to get into production, uh, Canada decided to just buy. And Canada and Britain were virtually in the same spot. Uh, and Britain did not have capacity either, and yet now has become the envy of the world. Let me uh, read you a portion of this Globe and Mail article. Britain's COVID-19 vaccination program has been envied around the world, with the country already reaching its first target of vaccinating everyone over the age of 70. Most frontline health care workers and elderly home care residents have already been vaccinated. That's just over 15 million people in total, or close to one quarter of their population, and the figure is rising around 440,000 vaccinations a day we're hoping to get in 440 vaccinations or 400,000 vaccinations next week Uh, this is an impressive result that has put britain at the forefront of the global vaccination race and canada was in the same they were in the same situation that canada was 
and yet they just took a different direction. So how did Britain do it? How did a country where almost everything else has gone wrong during the pandemic, from delayed lockdowns to a botched testing program, soaring infection rates, get it right with vaccines? Much of the credit goes to Kate uh, Bingham, a no, uh, no-nonsense no venture capitalist who knew little about vaccines and even less about the government procurement program. When Prime Minister Boris Johnson asked her to lead a vaccine, a vaccine task force last May, Together with a group of business people, scientists, and bureaucrats, she devised a novel strategy that gave Britain a crucial head start early in the pandemic. While many other countries like Canada were scrambling to come up with a program last spring, uh, this group had already zeroed in on the most promising vaccine candidates and offered to help those drug companies with clinical trial and production, something that the Canadian government did not do. Uh, We've heard from companies saying they were just basically the door shut on them. Uh, They also started to rebuild uh, Britain's uh, pretty much dead vaccine manufacturing sector, a sector so that millions of doses could be made in the UK as soon as possible. So again, a situation that came out a few weeks ago that showed that we were pretty much in the same situation uh, that the UK was, or they are in the same situation we are, but took a different direction and ended up obviously where they are. Today, Canada 39th in the world when it comes to vaccinating their population and waiting and waiting and waiting, hoping by the fall that all of these vaccines will finally arrive and uh, Canadians will be vaccinated. Let's bring in uh, Crystal Gamansing, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. She is with us now. Crystal, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi there. Yes, I am. Thanks. So how did uh, the UK get to from zero to 100 so quickly? Because we remember when they started, they were being criticized. Boris Johnson was on how he handled all of this. And yet at the end, he got he got the vaccination uh, production line rolling. How did they get there? Well, I think you have to separate these issues into a couple of different piles, and I can't comment directly on the Global Mail's reporting because that's not our reporting and it's not my reporting. Yeah. Um, but it is a different situation. The UK wasn't exactly in the same situation as Canada. Canada doesn't have production facilities. Canada doesn't have attachments to universities that were producing um, uh, really um, high-quality and likely successful vaccine candidates where you have the UK with Oxford and the AstraZeneca deal, and you also have the UK in a position where they have locations where they could ramp up production, even though one of the vaccines that will be produced here in the UK, it won't be produced anytime soon. We're talking about a year or so away. Um, So you have to look at these things in a little bit more of a wide-angle lens. Now, they did... Um, struggle incredibly much off the front end of of this Mm -hmm. pandemic. Like many other countries, you know, we have one of the highest death tolls in in the world, the the highest in in Europe with more than 117,000 deaths today infections. We had more than 10,000 infections again. But yes, in terms of the vaccine rollout, um, they did partner with many different um, agencies who were producing candidates and, and investors investigating different vaccines. And so they had those relationships and then started to go out and do the multiple bids, the multiple ideas. Um, 
with these potentially successful vaccine candidates. So they'd have people sort of um, potential uh, contracts ready to go. And the supply chain, if we look at, you know, the UK has um, three uh, emergency approvals. We have the Pfizer-BioNTech, we have the AstraZeneca vaccine, but we also have Moderna's. Um, but we, I can tell you that with the Moderna vaccine, it's not even in use yet. And we don't think we'll even get any of, uh, you know, supply until maybe the spring. So the vaccines that are actually being used here are the Pfizer-BioNTech and the, and the Oxford jab. So it, it is, it, it's, everybody wants to compare right now and say, you know, how did they win and how did we lose? But everyone is in a very different situation. And so it's hard to really compare apples to apples uh, with this pandemic because everyone is in such a different situation. The, the UK is doing incredibly well with the vaccine rollout. We saw yesterday uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson coming out talking about the more than 15 million vaccines being administered so far. Those are first doses, not second doses, but it's a huge accomplishment. They also started, remember, back in early December. December 8th was when our first jab was was handed out, and we are now progressed into that, you know, that... Um, a priority risk group of the 65-year-olds and then going up as well as healthcare workers and vulnerable people. But there's still a massive number of people to get through and to actually get into vaccinations um, and in different clinics. So when we talk about just vaccinations, there is a massive uh, process underway. This is the largest immunization campaign undertaken in the UK, but it's also being done by the National Health Service, the military is heavily involved. There are um, pharmacists giving out the vaccine. There's even St. John's Ambulance volunteers being trained so that they can go into the massive clinic settings and help give vaccinations. So that's also helping out. It's just you have the supply and you have the people actually giving the jab. So that's, that's a big part of what's, what's gone right in this situation. So what can Canada learn from the UK in what they've accomplished here? I think a part of it, and, and again, this is just sort of observational, is it's coming down to looking at the vaccines that are available and how to best administer those and making sure we hear this from, you know, the World Health Organization and Gavi, which is, you know, helping to procure um, vaccine for, for low-income countries as well as other countries. They were around to sort of, you know, reduce the number of bilateral uh, deals between countries and, and manufacturers. Um, and it comes down to have everything ready to go the second you get that supply so that there's no lag time. You have the process, you know who's going to be administering them, you know where it's going to be done, and people are ready to, to walk in and get those shots. And, and that is something the UK has, has done very well and has been organized with. And as you said, um, much of the pandemic has not gone well for this country, and there are um, you know, tens of thousands of, of, of lives that have been lost. Um, is the UK just busy worried about its own situation or does the story of Canada play over there? Uh, how does the world view where Canada is in this line, considering how well the UK is doing, the fact that we're at 39th? Is that playing over there at all? No, you have to look at the fact that, you know, while there's yeah. a, a huge number of people who have been vaccinated, we had 10,000 infections today alone. Hmm. You know, so and, and that number is a massive improvement. You know, a month ago, we were looking at more than 40 to 60,000 infections 
per day. We are looking at at least a thousand admissions to hospital. Right now, we have more people in emergency rooms in the United Kingdom than there were at the peak of the pandemic in April. So while the vaccine numbers are incredibly positive, and it is a good story, the situation with the pandemic is still incredibly, incredibly um, um, fragile because we, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, you've got to tip that, that go over the edge to, to get that vaccination over. But we're still dealing with infections. We're still dealing with deaths on a huge scale. And that's why you see politicians still talking about, yes, it's looking good, but no, we can't get out of lockdown. England's been in lockdown since before Christmas. Are, is the UK starting to see any results of this vaccination? Are you starting to see these numbers uh, uh, you know, um, stabilize a little bit because of the vaccination? Are you starting to, to, to feel that positivity that something is changing? You are on the right track. Well, Chris Whitty talked about it yesterday. He's uh, the chief medical officer of health out here and said, you know, we really were starting to get to that edge where we're starting to see some benefits, but it hasn't come through yet. Really, what we're seeing is the positive impact of, of the lockdown in England that's been on for months. So that's really the result what we're seeing. But officials are saying we should start to see those those hospitalization numbers, those death numbers drop down. And at a certain point, they will be able to start saying this is because because of the vaccines, uh, but we're not there yet, though they say that we're, we're getting close to that point. So has Boris Johnson gone from uh, bad guy to good guy, considering how this has changed for him in such a short period of time? I think it really depends on who you ask and what yeah. day it is. You know, we have to remember um, highest death toll in Europe, more than yeah. 117,000 people have lost their lives to this virus hospital workers, uh, nurses, doctors still overrun. Um, Boris himself was in hospital for weeks with this virus. So uh, I I think if you talk to a lot of family members, they'd probably tell you, no, he's not a winner in this. Um, You know, has he, has this government done very well with the vaccination rollout? Yes. Uh, which, you know, I, I, I think everyone is, is very pleased to see. But uh, again, the bulk of the population, um, they are still waiting for a, a vaccine. The majority of adults probably won't see one until, you know, autumn is what we're being told. And, and again, England's still in a lockdown. Crystal Gamansing with us, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, talking about UK and Europe and how they are handling COVID-19. And make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Crystal, thank you for the time. Be well. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you, and you take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We enter into week number, I wrote the number, I wrote the wrong number down. 40, 48. Is it 48? No, last week was 40. This is 49. Man, oh man. <laughs> Thank you for that, Will. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm in such a blur that uh, I don't even know what week it's been. It's week number 49, like we even won it. At one time, we stopped mentioning that. Now we're back to it. 
All right. Um, fascinating watching the Prime Minister today on his news conference, which I would say 99.9% of it was about uh, gun control. He was eventually asked an interesting question about Canada-China relations and especially what's happening with the Muslim Uyghur population over there. And the reporter was using the term genocide. And the Prime Minister, although would refer to our own situation here with the Indigenous community as genocide, is very apprehensive to use the term genocide when uh, talking about the Chinese Communist Party, despite what everything that we know, the two Michaels, what have you. Here is a clip of what the Prime Minister had to say this morning. I think the primary concern we have as a government that has always been responsible about using this extremely loaded term is not uh, applying it to things that don't meet the very clear uh, internationally recognized criteria around genocide. Uh, there is no question that there have been tremendous uh, human, rights, human rights abuses reported uh, coming out of Xinjiang, uh, and we are extremely concerned of that and have highlighted our concerns many times. But when it comes to the application of the very specific word genocide, uh, we simply need to ensure uh, that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed in the processes uh, before a determination like that is made. We recognize that there are uh, different organizations and even countries uh, that have made that declaration, uh, and the international community and Canada are leaning in carefully uh, to make sure that we can make the right declaration moving forward. All right, let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, McDonald laurier Institute, and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. You snowed in? Uh, pretty much, uh, Scott, and it's still coming down uh, big time. So, you know, I, uh, I'm going to get out the, the snowblower uh, when the time comes. and <laughs> Eventually. We'll gas up. <laughs> So what are your thoughts about uh, the Prime Minister and the terminology and not wanting to use uh, the term genocide when talking about Muslim Uyghurs in China? Is it genocide or not? Oh, yeah, it's definitely genocide. Uh, you know, the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, Subcommittee on International Human Rights, did a major study on this and determined that it constitutes genocide. The former Liberal government Justice Minister, Erwin Kotler, who you know, is probably one of the most respected Canadians alive today, has explained how what's going on in Xinjiang meets the, the criteria of the UN um, uh, Genocide Convention. You know, the, the fact that, that uh, women's fertility is being curtailed by uh, forced uh, birth control, that, uh, that Uyghur children are being sent to be raised in orphanages in the Mandarin language to eliminate their culture while their parents are being held in these uh, concentration camps where they are required to give up their religion and language. There are just all sorts of reasons why it's genocide. The line of our government, particularly under the Foreign, Foreign, Foreign Minister uh, Champagne, was that, uh, you know, government wants to wait and see until the UN Special Rapporteur on, on, geno on genocide goes to China to do an on-site investigation. But as the, the lead of the Conservative Party on this, um, the MP Garnet Genesis said, there is no snowball chance in hell that, that the Chinese are going to allow UN access to do a fair investigation of what's going on in that area and in those camps. So, you know, this is disgraceful that our government is not able to follow the lead of other governments. 
and simply um, uh, say it's genocide and uh, respond accordingly, which is, you know, with sanctions on those who are complicit in this genocidal action. You know, we have the burden of history on us over what happened in the uh, in the Nazi uh, concentration camps, and can we really uh, stand idly by making up excuses not to determine that what's going on here is beyond a crime against humanity, but in fact amounts to um, genocide, which you know was the the first covenant that the United Nations established when it was set up in 1948. I mean, it, there is nothing much worse so, that one can see than genocide in a government's behavior towards a certain group of people. So how do you explain his statement, Charles? I mean, it's one thing to avoid it, but then to come out and say, we have to be careful about calling it genocide because uh, that takes away from the other genocides that have happened uh, in the world. Why is he continually sticking up for China? Is this not misleading Canadian the Canadian people? Well, I think it certainly is something that the Chinese embassy is happy about to see us, um, you know, not engaging in any kind of Canadian uh, government programming that defends our interests and values with regard to China. And certainly it affirms to them that holding Michael Kovrick and Michael Saver in arbitrary detention is working for them because our government is is um, you know doing backflips to try and and uh, not offend the Chinese regime in any way you know the the other ridiculous statements made by the foreign minister with regard to um, persons in Canada who are being harassed or menaced by agents of the Chinese state you know it's similarly a betrayal of of um, non-white peoples because corporate and political elite interests are uh, are caught up in China and, and we feel that if we defend that regime by uh, by pointing out directly their their malign activities in Canada and abroad that we will lose access to the Chinese market. Uh, a couple other things here, Charles, and I'll just whip through them and then we'll go back over them. Uh, Huawei partnering with uh, Canadian universities, this despite a decision not on um, uh, on 5G yet. Well, the other five eyes have said, no, we don't want them uh, even close to this. Uh, the Canadian uh, Huawei vice president defending uh, the Huawei CFO that is being detained in Vancouver. Like, how how do you explain this? I mean, I understand that the, you know, uh, maybe a lot of the old political elite have, and the John McCallums of the world have a lot of money invested in China, but it, it, it doesn't seem that that is where the rest of the world is and certainly where Canadians' heads are right now. Well, I think particularly as, you know, the funding that's going into universities um, to to support Huawei is coming um, from the National Sciences and Engineering Research Council, which is a Canadian government grant-giving body to promote research and development in Canada. And, you know, most of the scholars in Canadian universities apply for these grants, and um, that's how they're able to, to engage in their research activities. So, I mean, it might be one thing to tell Canadians, oh, you can't take money from Huawei or you can't go to China and uh, and uh, collaborate with people who are working on Huawei. It's quite another thing for our taxpayers' dollars to be sent to support Huawei research. So Huawei gets the intellectual property developed by this research in very sensitive areas of 
higher level telecommunications. And we know that Huawei technology is then applied to surveillance against people in China, particularly including the, the Uyghur Muslims, facial surveillance technology, that this technology is being transferred to other um, non-democratic dictatorships so they can consolidate their, their uh, repressive rule over their people, and that this technology can be used strategically to challenge Canada, um, particularly the 5G, which you know, would not only allow China the capability to, to, to download all sorts of information off databases that pass, you know, the information passing through 5G, but potentially to install kill switches on critical Canadian infrastructure that would be dependent on the 5G technology. So, you know, the idea that Canada's facilitating this and allowing the Chinese regime to get um, sensitive high-tech technologies at a discount price subsidized by us and by the funding that provincial governments give to universities and, and subsidy to, you know, professor salaries and so on, is frankly just outrageous, and it should stop. You know, I guess the government will say, well, Huawei employs a lot of people in Canada, but then so did Nortel way back when, didn't they? Um, how how can the Canadian government... Uh, how can they how can they validate working with Huawei and Ontario part or sorry Ottawa partnering uh, partnering with Huawei to fund university research despite security concerns where does that leave the whole 5G question so we're going to kick them out of 5G but we're going to take money for our universities from them well that's the thing and we're not kicking them out of 5G uh, you know so far Canada is the only country that has not determined that Huawei uh, cannot put in that 5G because of the enormous security risks that have been identified. Um, my concern is that if the Liberals come back into power with a majority government, that they will okay 5G and that uh, we will then, you know, be serving Chinese interests both in, in terms of getting this discount equipment uh, that facilitates uh, China's further control over our, our personnel files and infrastructure, and will also serve Chinese interests by um, uh, alienating us from our 5G partners. In other words, the United States has said quite clearly that if Canada puts in Huawei 5G, they will not be able to uh, share intelligence with us the way that they did before because we simply are not a secure partner for them to to partner on in, in, uh, in global security matters. And so, now we're... And now we're hearing that the Canadian uh, vice president of Huawei is defending uh, Canada uh, is defending uh, the Huawei CFO's rights, uh, and 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 is against what Canada is doing here. I mean, isn't that a conflict of interest? Well, I think that you know the interview that was done by uh, Mercedes Stevenson with Global was really very revealing about the extent to which. Huawei is defending the interests of a, a foreign hostile regime, and he refused to say that there was any notion that that Kovrigan's favor were arbitrarily dis- detained. But he insisted that Ms. Mung had never done anything wrong. Well, how he knows that, uh, you know, is beyond me. But one would have thought if he really feels that Ms. Mung has never done anything wrong, then why doesn't he encourage her to, you know, to simply go to the United States? and defend herself from what they regard as false charges. Um, that's clearly not what he has in mind. And then he suggests that Huawei's not a political 
um, actor, and therefore they just want everybody to go home. I guess on the basis that you know we all prefer to be in home, in home than in Chinese prison hell or, or uh, or you know detention paradise or Miss Mung in in Vancouver. But you know clearly Huawei is representing what the Chinese government wants, and what they want is to prevent Miss Mung from going to the United States where, as part of a plea bargain, she might provide information about the relationship between her company, Huawei, and Chinese intelligence and security apparatus. So, you know, that, uh, it's, uh, I, I'm really at a loss, you know. Like what, I, I am, you know what, Charles, that, that's works, a... Works for a forces hostile to Canada. You yeah, know? Uh, you know, Charles, I think, you know, I, I'm the same thing. I, I just can't, I'm shaking my head at all of this. And Canada, Canadians, just as long as they're comfortable, they just don't seem to care about this sort of stuff. And I feel that there's, there's actors out there that are taking advantage of Canadians' good nature and sensitivity to racial issues. And Canada's, yep, yep, oh, okay, everything's good here. And, and that's my next question, Charles, is uh, are Canadians happy with our Prime Minister's love affair with the Chinese Communist Party? I mean, whether it's 5G, whether it's Huawei, um, whether it's it's uh, the CFO case, whether it's uh, the Uyghurs, uh, uh, any of these issues, investing in our universities and our healthcare systems, they just don't seem to care. You know, I mean, not to speak of Hong Kong, where, you know, 300... Uh, there's another one, Hong Kong. ...have been told that, that uh, the Chinese government won't be respecting their Canadian passports. So, you know, I, I mean, I think the, the thing is that, that most Canadians have got the picture that, that engaging with China is a bad idea for Canada. You know, the, the public opinion polls show that people think that, that uh, further enhanced engagement with, with China is not the way the Canadian government should go. The question is that the issue doesn't seem to have enough presence that it will affect how people vote. So it's not big enough to be an election issue at this time. So... You know, hopefully people will become more sensitized because this does present a serious risk to our to our democracy and our, our rule of law and to, um, you know, preventing corruption of, of, of politicians who, um, if they treat a foreign hostile power nicely, can expect rewards in, in retirement and board memberships and other benefits that, uh, you know, quite a few of them seem to have derived. So... How concerned are you that this just doesn't seem to be resonating with Canadians? I, I am concerned about it because, you know, it's a gradual process, and, and the Chinese regime is able to move further and further into influence in our country. It's sort of like a game of, of go, you know. They, they're they surrounding us more and more, and eventually they'll come in. And, and over time, each thing that they do, you know, whether it's um, acquiring... Uh, a mine up in the north that provides the potential for port facilities out to the Northwest Passage that, you know, could be of political use for submarine bases in the future, or or whether it's, um, you know, getting economic leverage over us by uh, by dominating our export markets for certain commodities. You know, it, it all fits into a piece, and, and as we get deeper and deeper into our, our relationship with that regime, the more and more we have to appreciate that it's not simply about trade, but that China has global ambitions that are hostile to to our way of life and and our and our notion of how Canada should should be in a in a fair and reciprocal, just global uh, community. 
I remember reading anecdotally, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, China is winning World War III without firing a shot. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're, use, they're using other methods to try and, and further their agenda in our country. So far, you know, we've been resistant to um, major Chinese state takeovers of critical Canadian infrastructure. You know, they've been, they have had, uh, well, for example, their attempt to acquire Canada's largest publicly held construction company, the Acon Company, which, you know, had contracts on nuclear plants and the Gordie Howe Bridge was, to my mm. surprise, turned down by the Liberal government. They haven't been able to, to do the kind of investment in the oil sands or to, or to uh, convince our government to allow the Chinese to put pipelines across uh, sensitive areas of B.C. and remove the regulations with regard to Chinese tankers plying those waters to get our, our, our oil to China. You know, there's certain things that we haven't, been able, we haven't moved on yet, but their their influence over our policy process and over our our um, senior decision makers is is worrying. And statements by the prime minister on things like uh, like uh, genocide or on Hong Kong or other aspects, which don't seem to actually make a lot of sense, um, you know, concern me very much. Uh, we've only got about a minute left here, uh, Charles. How does COVID nineteen fit into this discussion? Well, I think clearly the Chinese are not being frank about the origins of the disease. They did not provide the WHO delegation with the raw data that they'd wanted to try and get to the bottom of it. And as a result, you know, a lot of Canadians are dying unnecessarily uh, because we weren't able to to um, stop the thing from coming into our country early on when the Chinese misled us about human-to-human transmission. So. There's a lot of culpability there, and, uh, you know, it it, uh, it certainly would be better if they would be a bit more open and transparent so that we can get the information and prevent this from happening again. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, talking about Canada and China relations. Charles, thanks for the time, as always. Be well. Great to speak with you. Thanks, Charles. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.